you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Network. Welcome to episode 60 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now, let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you for your prayers for me and my family and my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. We appreciate it so much. Before I get into the show notes for episode 60, I want to give you a preview of one of the songs off my upcoming 10-song album called The Wanderer, and this is the title track. Just be a little one-minute snippet of that title track, Wanderer. Yeah, so that is uh, the title track off the new 10-song album that's coming out called Wanderer. And that should hopefully be out before the end of the year. Uh, I've got seven of the songs completely done and three more to go with just a few lead parts and then mixing and mastering. So please, guys, please be in prayer for that. All right, well, in episode 60, I'm getting back into my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, and this will be chapter 13 called Miracles on the Third Day. And it's just a beginning uh, of demonstrating how Jesus is the fulfillment of so many characters and so many uh, scenes in the Old Testament. It's all fulfilled and wrapped up in Jesus. And if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a review and rating on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also consider leaving a review on my, uh, my book site on Amazon uh, also, as that will help people find it. If you're not a subscriber to Reclaiming the Faith, please 
consider doing that, whether it's on iTunes or on um, my website, uh, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. You can find links to all these things on my website, philsbaker.com, as well as a link to uh, my Patreon account where people can get extra videos of content. Once a month, you'll get a video detailing either an early Christian document or a really important early Christian in that anti-Nicene era, and you'll also get a video of an acoustic version of one of my original songs there. So please consider checking out my Patreon at patreon.com slash philsbaker. Yeah, so as I said earlier, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Falls' Fourth Watch Radio Network along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And uh, you definitely want to check that out. If you have a question about this episode or anything that's on the Fourth Watch, please uh, please feel free to write in, even if it's just a, like an ethical dilemma you're in and you want to hear a biblical response to that, please consider writing in, emailing me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com or hitting up bdk uh, at omegafrequency.com, and we will be sure to answer those questions on Ready With An Answer. Finally, the uh, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers that you can find on Scroll, Publishing, Scroll Publishing's website, scrollpublishing.com, and you can buy that for a mere five dollars so please check that out all right without any further ado let's get episode 60 rolling every year we've been married stephanie and i have taken a trip together usually overseas so when we began the process of adopting two beautiful kids we realized that 2013 might be the final opportunity for us to take one of those major trips for a while. We prayed about it and decided to take a 10-day tour of Israel. I'm a big fan of Christian teacher Ray Vanderlaan taking tour groups through important biblical sites, and we definitely wanted a Christian guide for our tour. We also didn't want to spend an arm and a leg Unfortunately, Stephanie found a great deal on a tour that had Jesus' name in the title. So we thought this would be a vacation where we could relax and receive spiritual nourishment from a Christian tour guide while walking in the same places as our Lord. Life, though, is full of surprises. When we got there, we we quickly realized our tour guide was not a follower of Jesus. Rather, he stated that he was Jewish which was unexpected, but fine. I love Jewish people, and many of them have played a positive role in helping shape me into the person that I am today. Our tour guide, however, was Jewish by blood, but more of an agnostic in his beliefs. Though he was nice and and very helpful, early on, Stephanie and I began to notice that he was subtly painting Jesus as a sort of false messiah. And I can't fault him for taking this approach. Like me, he had been raised with old wineskins concerning Jesus that had shaped his worldview in a way contrary to the simple reading of Scripture. The night before we were to go to Capernaum, he issued a challenge to us while we were on the bus. And as far as I'm aware, all but one of the more than 30 of us on the tour professed to be Christians. Well, he said the next day 
he would give us a chance to explain why the gospel writer John chose to write that Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine happened on the third day. The bus went silent, and I stayed that way until we arrived at our hotels. I couldn't sleep that night. So I sought God for wisdom concerning the matter of Jesus' first miracle. And after about 45 minutes, I felt like God had given me a sound enough reply. So I turned the light off and went to bed. The next morning, our guide tried to convince us of his opinion about Jesus' first miracle. His answer was succinct but strange. He said that, according to the Jewish tradition of Kabbalah, three is the number of good luck. Now, Kabbalah is widely understood by Christians to be one of the most ancient forms of the occult and Gnosticism. Thus, our guide was not only implying that John was an endorser of Kabbalah, but that Jesus was as well. Well, after he finished, he asked if anyone else had an opinion on the matter. And no one raised their hand, so I asked if I could address the group. And the following is the gist of what I said. John's gospel is different from the other gospels because his begins with a creation account. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, I believe John did this to show that Jesus and the Lord God of Genesis, who created all things, are one. Genesis also begins with a creation account. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before we see the days of creation listed, God is there, and the Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters. Then on day one, God creates light and separates it from darkness. On day two, God creates an expanse to separate the waters below from the waters above and calls the expanse heaven. On day three, God creates dry ground and brings forth all, all sorts of vegetation with plants and trees reproducing according to their kind. That feat is spectacular because the sun will not be created until day four. Jesus' public ministry begins in John chapter 1, verse 35, which is two days before the wedding at Cana, day 3. Remember how the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters before the first day of creation in Genesis? Well, here is what John said happened the day before the first day of the Creator's ministry on earth. This is John chapter 1, verse 29 through 30, 32 through 34. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I have seen 
and I have testified that this is the Son of God. So in John's account, the Spirit of God descends from heaven, hovers over the body of water, and remains with Jesus, the Word of God, an agent of creation. Then, on the first day of Jesus' ministry, the true light comes on the scene. John the Baptist points him out, and some of his disciples begin to follow Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah. So you can see verses 35 through 42. On the second day, Jesus explains to Nathanael that he is the true bridge that crosses the great expanse between heaven and earth. And you can see that in verses 43 through 41, or 43 through 51. On the third day, a tremendous miracle takes place with a seed-bearing plant. Wine is produced not from grapes fermenting over time, but instantly from Jesus blessing water. Early Christian writer Theophilus wrote that God created the sun on the fourth day to show it is he who ultimately gives life to all things and sustains all things, not the forces of nature. And similarly, John says that Jesus' first miracle was also a sign of something greater. You can see chapter 2, verse 11. Roughly three years later, Jesus was crucified for our sins, and Jesus prophesied, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. That's Matthew chapter 20, verses 19, or 18 and 19. The greatest miracle of all, the empty tomb, happened on the third day. Of course, there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. John adds a detail about that gruesome scene in John chapter 19, verse 32 through 34. He writes, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. In Cana, through the power of Christ, water and wine turned a party fowl into a wedding feast for the ages. At Golgotha, Blood and water flowed out from the Messiah's side, bringing salvation to all who fully entrust themselves to him. Now, I said some other things that morning, but those were the main points. God gives us what we need at just the right time to help others in need and to bring glory to his name. Now, I do not believe John was saying three is the number of good luck. However, I do believe that he was demonstrating a crucial lesson Jesus taught the disciples after he rose from the dead. In Luke 24, the risen Christ appears to two of his disciples as they are walking to Emmaus, but he conceals his identity. The disciples are quite disheartened because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he was killed. Also, they say it is the third day, the day he said he would rise from the dead, and to their knowledge, He hasn't come back to life, though some of the female disciples say they saw him earlier in the day. 
Jesus responds. This is in verses 25 to 27 of Luke 24. He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the things the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Later that day, Jesus appears to the remaining disciples and says, this is in verse 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus then opens their minds to understand the scriptures, and he says in verse 46 through 47, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I believe the most important lesson Jesus is revealing is that all the Old Testament is designed to point us to him. No matter what section of the first 39 books of the Bible we study, there will always be something to direct us to Christ. To illustrate my point, let's consider the first nine chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1, Jesus is the life that comes out of the ground on the third day. In chapter 2, he is killed on the tree with which we sinned so that one day we can again eat from the tree of life. In Genesis 3, he is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. In chapter 4, Jesus is the better Abel who is murdered out of envy and thus becomes the perfect offering for the sins of the world. In chapter 5, Jesus is the better Seth, the true image bearer of the Father, and the better Enoch, the one who walked with God without sinning all the days of his life. In Genesis 6, Jesus is the better Noah, the true preacher of righteousness who proclaims the way of salvation. In Genesis 7, he is the true ark to whom the humble will run and the true door we must enter through to escape the flood of judgment. In Genesis 8, Jesus is the true dove who, who declares peace to the world. And in Genesis 9, he is the covenant-establishing God who gives his life to keep his covenant of love with humanity. A false doctrine again creeping into the church states the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. And I say it's creeping in again because it's well documented that during the second century, a man named Marcion was denounced as a heretic for promoting that and other Gnostic teachings. Oftentimes, people who are holding on to this ancient heresy will say that while they don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, they do believe in Jesus and the God of the New Testament. It's quite interesting, though, that if you read the New Testament, how often Jesus identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's simply not true. He absolutely claimed to be God. He just did it in a Jewish way since he was a Jew. For instance, in Mark 14, Jesus has been arrested in his standing trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. Many false charges have been brought by false witnesses, yet Jesus remains silent. 
Mark records, The high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further do we need of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So, how did Jesus slander God's name? In fact, he did not. What Jesus actually did was quote a loaded messianic text and apply it to himself. The passage Jesus was quoting was found in Daniel 7, verse 13-14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he wasn't merely highlighting his humanity. Rather, he was calling attention to the fact that he was the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. He was the messianic cloud rider, the Son of Man, who becomes the everlasting King of all the earth. All nations will serve him. So do you see why the priests were so angry? They were thinking, we will never serve you. Yet that was what Jesus was saying. But where does this passage say that the cloud rider is God? One answer, in addition to Jesus' use of ego eimi, I am, is that his words link with another messianic prophecy found in, da- in uh, Isaiah. In Daniel chapter 7, the cloud riding son of man is a king whose kingdom will cover the earth and will never end. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this child, this son of man, is going to be called some remarkable things like mighty God and eternal father. And this God-man is going to reign on David's throne forever, meaning he will be the Messiah and there will be no end to the increase of his reign. So all the Jews understand full and well that Jesus has just said that he is one with the Lord God of the Old Testament. They consider him a blasphemer and the punishment for that crime is death. But let's rewind a bit to find another example of Jesus saying, He is God. In John chapter 10, verse 14 through 16, Jesus says to the Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep 
which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Later, as Jesus is walking in the temple, the Jews gather around him and ask, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's verse 24. And Jesus answers, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's verses 25 through 30. At this time, Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Well, once again, we need to look at the Old Testament to understand why the Jews believed Jesus was blaspheming by making himself out to be God. In Ezekiel 34, verses 1-10, through God speaks harsh rebukes against the shepherds and leaders of Israel for exploiting the people, the flock of Israel, for their own gain. The Lord pronounces woes on the shepherd and says that he is now against them. He declares that since none of the shepherds and leaders of Israel are doing this critical job right, he will do it himself. Verses 11 through 12 and 15 through 16, Ezekiel writes, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. God then gives them a messianic prophecy in verses 23 through 24. He says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord God, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. Now, of course, By Ezekiel's time, David had been dead for hundreds of years. Therefore, it is widely understood that David references to the the Messiah who would come. See, for example, Bartimaeus' confession in Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. However, the Lord doesn't leave any doubt about the true nature of the good shepherd, for he states in Ezekiel 34, verses 30 through 31, Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God. So the Lord God is the good shepherd, and God's servant, the son of David, is also the good shepherd. Jesus is the son of David and the Good Shepherd, who is the Lord God. So now you see why the, why the Jews wanted to kill him. 
Jesus not only quotes Ezekiel to show that he is God, but also Deuteronomy 32, 39, where Yahweh says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Jesus has just said that he is the one who gives life, and no one can snatch someone out of his hand. He then says that he and the Father are one. But Yahweh says in Deuteronomy, there is no God beside him. This is yet another reason why the religious leaders wanted to stone him. So let's look at one last example of Jesus identifying himself with the Lord God of the Old Testament. However, this time we will begin with a passage from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 6, the prophet writes, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. In verse 1, Isaiah said that he saw the Lord on the throne, lofty and exalted. The Hebrew word used here for Lord is Adonai. So Isaiah testified that he saw the Lord, Adonai, high and lifted up on the throne. Second, in verse 5, Isaiah says that he is in deep trouble because he is a man of unclean lips and his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the same Lord of hosts the seraphim said was holy, holy, holy. In verse 3, well, the phrase Lord of hosts in Hebrew is Yahweh Sabaoth, or if you'd prefer, Jehovah Sabaoth. Therefore, we are able to easily deduce that Isaiah saw a manifestation of Yahweh in his vision recorded in Isaiah 6. Now, we'll move back to the New Testament. In John 12, we find Jesus in the last week of his life. He's already raised Lazarus from the dead and is popular with most of the people. But the leaders of the Jews are plotting to kill both him and Lazarus. 
John writes this in verse 37 through 43. Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the the approval of God. So John quotes Isaiah 6, and then he writes that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So who is the him whom John says Isaiah saw? Well, the answer is found in verses 37 and 42 of John 12, where John says, Even though Jesus was performing many signs, the Jews refused to believe in him, and the ones who did not believe wouldn't confess him because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. No one would get put out of the synagogue for confessing belief in Yahweh. All Jews confessed that truth every time they said the Shema. See Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. But a person would get put out of the synagogue for confessing the truth that Jesus is Yahweh. Many of them were seeing, yet they weren't believing. Isaiah, however, saw his glory and believed. He saw Yahweh. So once again, John tells us that Jesus and Yahweh are one. After Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Jesus, his life was never the same. As his old wineskins were burst, he was filled with an excitement and boldness to do anything for the Lord God, no matter the cost. Just as Isaiah's life was turned right side up when he actually saw the Lord God after serving him for so many years, my world was rocked when I began to discover how the entire Old Testament was designed to point us to Jesus. It changed everything. Many of my old wineskins were burst, which helped me make sense of so many things in the Old Testament that had troubled me in the past. As you read the rest of this book, may you have a similar eye-opening, heartwarming, and spiritually invigorating experience. And may it produce a renewed love for studying scriptures and living them out due to an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the great things Jesus has done, is doing, and is going to do for you. God bless you. Rock of ages, clap for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which float be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure
not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hands no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. O God of mercy, God of grace, God of love, you took my place. I deserved all hell could bring. Rock of ages, cleft for me. This fleeting breath When my eyes shall close in death When I rise to worlds unknown And behold thee on thy throne O rock of ages, cleft for me Let me hide myself in thee O God of mercy, God of grace, God of love, you took my place. I deserved all hell could bring, rock of ages cleft for me. Yes, God of mercy, God of grace, God of love, you took my place. I deserved all hell could bring Rock of ages cleft for me Yes, I deserved all hell could bring Rock of ages cleft for me